Tonight, why Wall Street doesn't believe Jerome Powell and the bank that started all that recent recent turmoil, they've got a buyer. You're listening to Simply Money presented by Allworth Financial. I'm Steve Sprovac along with Steve Ruby. We've got a lot to get to this evening, so let, let's just get right into it and bring on Allworth Financial's Chief Investment Officer, Andy Stout. Andy manages billions of dollars of investments right here in Cincinnati. Andy, let's start right off with Silicon Valley Bank. There was an announcement earlier today. First Citizens bought Silicon Valley Bank. Um, another example of the banking system taking care of their own. Has that pretty much stabilized the, the concern or do we still have other concerns out there in banking? Well, I think it certainly helps in the short run, Steve. When we look about or we look at across the whole banking sector, you know, there's still some issues that you know, we're paying really close attention to. For example, uh, smaller banks, uh, like your smaller regional banks in general, you know, they yeah. hold 67% of commercial real estate out there. You know, and while commercial real estate's been doing okay, you know, there are certainly some uh, issues, you know, that we're watching when we look at the uh, the underlying characteristics on the the vol- sales price, sales volume, and price pressures in general. So, is it over? There's probably a few more things to uh, percolate up through the surface, uh, but in terms of like your your big risks that are out there, there's certainly uh, it's certainly fewer than what it was. You know, this really comes back to that Janet Yellen saying last week, while there's yeah. no blanket insurance coverage, meaning full like FDIC insurance. She scared people. She scared people she when sure she did. said she that. Did. Yeah. She did, but she also said, uh, you know, relatively in the same breath, that the the Treasury FDIC is prepared to do something similar for what they did to S for SV, SVB's uh, depositors in terms of protecting the smaller banks. So if you're you got your deposits at a small bank, which tend to be the riskier ones in general, uh, she basically said that they would bail them out, right? So I think that helped to stabilize it to a degree, but the market certainly wanted that blanket coverage uh, to protect your even bigger banks like JP Morgan. But that's really kind of stretching what her authority is and would really want it to uh, talk with lawmakers first and iron all of those details out first. But to answer your question, we're definitely more stable uh, than mm-hmm. what we were, although there's certainly some issues out there I'm still watching, especially if I'm, I'm looking at deposit flows. We saw the latest data we had, uh, Steve, showed that small bank deposits uh, fell $120 billion. I mean, that's how much got pulled out, and that's by wow. far the biggest uh, week ever. Now, that's as of March 15th, that the uh, as of that date. So we don't have the more recent data, uh, and so maybe it's stabilized a little bit since then. And, Fed Chair Powell did allude to that last week. So based on last week's rate increase from the Fed, it almost seems like they're choosing to fight inflation over saving the failing banks. What would you say to that, Andy? Absolutely. And that's what we saw in Europe with the European Central Bank or ECB. You know, they they did the same thing. They hiked by half a point uh, a couple of weeks ago. Fed hiked by a quarter point last week, bringing the target Fed funds rate to a range of 4.75 to 5 a uh, percent. And basically, they understand that the banking crisis, you know, has caused, uh, you know, some turmoil, if you will. And it's it's kind of had the same effect as what rate hikes would. So when we look at the Fed's uh, statement, 
And when we look at what's called also the Fed's dot plot, which is something they release every quarter, uh, and they just released one last week, it shows where each member of the Fed believes uh, the Fed funds rate will be at the end of the upcoming calendar years. You know, it did not change uh, for 2023, which is interesting because two weeks ago, if you remember, Chair Powell was testifying before Congress, and he said that you know more rate uh, we expect to adjust upward our expectations for this year. So that kind of left the assumption that it would probably be about half point uh, in additional rate hikes, but they didn't change that. So that tells me that they're viewing this banking crisis as basically having the same impact on inflation by about half a point. You're listening to Simply Money on 55KRC. I'm Steve Sprovac along with Steve Ruby. And if it's Monday, we must be talking to Andy Stout, Chief Investment Officer of Allworth Financial. Andy, it's interesting how the the Fed, I I mean, this really rattled the Fed when when we saw this banking crisis develop, I I guess it was about two weeks ago. Um, One of the things I haven't seen anybody else talking about, though, is the Fed is is and has been selling off the bonds that they accumulated during quantitative easing. They, I mean, they're selling off about $90 billion worth of bonds a month. That, that's a big number. And when you dump that many bonds on the market, that also raises interest rates. It, it, has what they've been doing, would you consider that a de facto interest rate hike where they didn't have to raise rates as much as they would have if they weren't selling off these bonds? But yeah, I mean, it has the has the same impact of tightening credit conditions, meaning making it more expensive uh, for people to borrow money, to buy cars, or to buy houses. And you know what the Fed is doing, if if you recall, they embarked on something called quantitative easing, uh, mm-hmm. which is uh, a way for them to essentially make monetary policy looser and to make credit conditions better. And they did that by buying a a bunch of bonds and flooded the economy with money. So when they bought the bonds, the money they had went into the economy and they bought treasury bonds. They bought um, a mortgage backed securities. And if you look about how uh, much their uh, balance sheet expanded by, I mean, it, it was, it was quite remarkable in the sense that it really jumped from, I'll call it, let's, let's go back to March 20, uh, 2020. It was about four, trillion and ultimately grew as the fed looked to do that through march uh of 2022 last year to about almost nine trillion so it increased a lot and over the past yeah yeah, and since then it's come down uh, a good amount to about 8.3 trillion but you know what it did spike when this banking crisis started as the fed uh, did these loans uh, so they they do have these emergency facilities trying to stabilize the system where it actually back up to 8.7 trillion. But what I'll say is they have not changed their quantitative tightening program that you're talking about, which still has uh, them essentially running off about 95 billion of treasury bonds and uh, mortgage-backed security bonds as part of that tightening, and that will likely continue. I don't see the Fed really doing anything to change that. Right. Andy, I want to bring it back to the dot plot. Does the market agree with what the Fed is projecting? With interest. So, 
Not really. Uh, when you look at the dot plot, again, it just tells you where the Fed members think uh, the rates will be at the end of upcoming calendar years. Mm -hmm. And when you look at what we look at is because, you know, there's more than one, you know, member, uh, we look at the median dot as a gauge to see where the Fed expects rates to be. And so they expect one more rate hike this year. And because Chair Powell in this press conference said no one is even thinking about rate cuts, that participants just don't see it happening this year, you know, that tells you they got one more rate cut and then they're pausing for the rest of the year, at least according to the dot plot. And when we look ahead to the next year's dot plot, as far as like what's expected for 2024, uh, it's almost 1% of rate cuts next year. But when we look at what the market expects, market's not buying what the fed is selling they, they don't uh, believe the all, fed <laughs> shocking i know yeah uh, <laughs> but what the market's priced in right now uh, it's about a 50 percent chance of a rate hike next uh, meeting on may 3rd uh, so 50 percent chance of a, a rate hike there of a quarter point 50 percent chance they do nothing so they got mm, you know, coin flip right now. We'll see how the data progresses between now and May 3rd, lots of uh, time between now and then. But when we look out the remainder of the year through the end of December, you know, what we're seeing is basically just about three rate cuts priced in this year. And again, the Fed has no rate cuts and, you know, four net four quarter point rate cuts next year. But that's what the market's saying. So the market is essentially under the assumption that what the Fed has done in terms of rate hikes will push us into uh, a recession. I mean, that's just, I mean, you're not going to have these sort of rate cuts unless uh, you're, you're in a recession. So, so you are, you are still expecting a recession. Well, that's what the markets, I would say the market's pricing that in based on the right. number of cuts. And when we look at the data out there, we look at the leading economic indicators, they are all pretty much signaling a slowdown across the board. Uh, it doesn't mean a recession is guaranteed, but it certainly means that the risks are high. And when you get situations or I'll call it uh, shocks, kind of like we had just with this banking uh, issue here, it makes mm -hmm. us more susceptible to a, a a full blown recession, and one can argue, and this is a really critical point. One can argue that a lot of the Fed rate hikes have not actually made their way into the economy because when you look at historically on how uh, rate hikes affect the economy, it tends to happen with about a six to a nine month lag, and so from that perspective, what has the Fed done? really over the past what six nine months well they've they've been hiking a lot and it hasn't made its if that lag holds true sure it hasn't made its way in the economy because six months ago uh basically we were at roughly two and a half percent we'll call it uh, at least on the september 15th on the fed funds rate on the upper end now we're at five percent so basically half of what the fed has done in this whole rate hike campaign has happened within the past roughly six months. So that hasn't fully made its way in the economy. And we're starting to see some cracks as we do in the banking system. The question that we don't know is, where are there other cracks? Where well, and I, I think I think that's the, the key is that lag time. We may, we the Fed may have done enough already. We just don't know that. So we've got some numbers coming up this week, Andy, um, in particular inflation numbers. What, what are you expecting? 
we're going to get an update on the Fed's preferred inflation measure, which is PCE, which right. is not as popular as what people think of when they hear inflation. They think of the consumer inflation, which is CPI. Uh, the reason the Fed prefers PCE is because it's broader based and includes more things than just what consumers buy. So like, think of like business spending as an example is also included in there. Now, when we look at where it's expected to come in at on a year over year basis, the headline PCE is expected to be 5.1% and core PCE, which excludes volatile food and energy prices, it's forecasted to come in around 4.7%. Yeah. That is nowhere close to what the Fed targets, which is 2%. So under that situation, the Fed would say we have a lot more work to do. But to your point, Steve, the Fed may have already done enough and we don't know what that ultimate pain will be as these rate hikes actually get into the economy. Because when you look at the pace of rate hikes, that's been basically the quickest ever in a 12 month time span. Great insight as always from Andy Stout, Chief Investment Officer of Allworth Financial. Th thanks, Andy. Here's the Allworth advice. Knowing when a recession will begin and when the market will top or bottom out, it's impossible. Don't even try. That's why we should avoid timing the market. Coming up next, where Americans are falling short on the road to financial freedom and how you can turn that around. You're listening to Simply Money on 55KRC, the talk station. You're listening to Simply Money presented by Allworth Financial. I'm Steve Sprovac along with Steve Ruby. If you can't listen to Simply Money every night, just subscribe to our daily podcast. You can listen to it the following morning after we air uh, during your commute at the gym, wherever you happen to and if you've got some friends that could use some advice, tell them too. Just search Simply Money on the iHeart app or wherever you find your podcast. Straight ahead at 643, the quantifiable power of financial advice. You know, Ruby, we, we've been talking about this a little bit. Um, Diamond Sports, which is the parent company of Bally's, mm -hmm. which airs the Cincinnati Reds on TV, they filed bankruptcy, and I knew when they couldn't make their $140 million interest payment that making a trillion-dollar rights payment to the various teams that uh, uh, they were broadcasting was dicey at, at best. Yeah. Um, we've been talking about the MLB, Major League Baseball, said uh, we'll pick up the slack and stream it. But Steve Watkins, our, our friend over at the uh, Cincinnati um, uh, business courier. Um, he broke a story saying it looks like for a while we're, we're still going to be able to watch the Reds on Bally's. Yeah, that's how they're closing the gap here for now. Game's still going to appear on Bally, Bally Sports Ohio. So you paid for that package, right? I to, did. To stream it. Yeah. So I guess it's when worth I care. I watch a lot of Reds games, but I'm not sure I care that much this year. <laughs> yeah. We'll see. Yeah. I mean, rebuilding. Speak, speaking of the Reds, uh, yeah. the franchise has been named among the MLB's least valuable organizations. And this is according to Forbes. Yeah. So pretty far removed from the big, big red machine, from World Series hopes. I, I, I moved to Cincinnati in 2007. Man, that was a lot of fun there for for a few years. Yeah, and, yeah. You know, it hasn't I, I, been I as great lately. Literally over the weekend, I hung up my 1976 signed Big Red Machine poster in in my basement. You sound hey, like you're bragging, Steve. Oh man, this thing is awesome. <laughs> it, it it really is. But yeah, you know, it's that that was their heyday, and yeah, we've had some good seasons since then, but not not that many lately. And I'll tell you what, you know, you're going to slide down the scale if you can't put a competitive product on the field. Yeah, yeah. And, and I, I think that's, that's part of the issue here. Number one, to nobody's surprise, New York Yankees, most yeah, valuable franchise. I've never liked the Yankees. Once upon a time, I lived in New York for a few years. Yeah. I worked there. Yeah. I hate being late. 
they made me late to a meeting because of their stupid parade after they won the World Series. You know how mad I was? <laughs> I would like to be late because of our World I know. Series I will, parade here in Cincinnati. I'll forever hold a grudge against the Yankees for that one. Uh, it's funny, but at least their fans are obnoxious, so... <laughs> We don't have to worry about that. <laughs> no, nah, the Reds were ranked number 28 out of 30 teams in value of the team. And, you know, I, you can argue as much about small market as much as you want. Cardinals ranked number 10, worth $2.5 billion versus the Reds $1.2 million. Uh, billion, I'm sorry. So, you know, it can be done in a smaller market. But, you know, yeah. so far, not to be the case. You're listening to Simply Money on 55KRC. I'm Steve Sprovac, along with Steve Ruby. And I want to talk a little bit about a really interesting survey that Fidelity did. And, and they do some good research. I, I, I really like some of the things I, I see coming out of uh, Fidelity. But one of the surveys they did uh, is showing that we're starting, we're going backwards with, with retirement savings. They found that U.S. adults are less prepared for retirement now than they were three years ago. Yeah. So according to their, their asset management, the, the brokerage custodial giant uh, Fidelity, average American is on track to only save or replace 78% of the income that they'll need in their post-work years. And this is down from 83% in 2020. I, I know. And it's as scary, actually. It, it really is. And, and, you know, as more and more companies are getting rid of their pension plans, yeah. which is basically the company saving for your retirement on your behalf, and it's being put on the individual to... You know, you've got to do it for yourself because there ain't nobody else doing it for you. And we're not stepping up to the plate. No, no, we're not. So what's really to blame in, in this decline in preparedness? A lot of people are saving less and investing more conservatively. Yeah, which is a natural reaction. You go through a bad market and everybody, you know, well, I just lost a lot of money. I don't want to have, you know, that much in the stock market if I lost, which is the exact opposite. Oh, yeah. You, we, you know, if you buy into the economy will recover, the market will recover, you should be jumping all over opportunities to buy when things are on sale, that's, basically. That's, right? that's the word I want to hone in on here is What's opportunity. That? Yeah. It is an opportunity. I, I get a lot of folks that I work with calling me, hey, the markets are down, inflation is scary, what's going on with the banks, I don't know what to do. Should I stop saving in my 401k right now? I, I know, <laughs> I know. I, I, I've had, I, I've actually had people say, I think I need to get out of my 401k because it's not doing well. Yeah, I, I say, do I, do you, Ridiculous. When things go on sale, do you not buy them or do you wait for them to go on sale to buy them? No lie. In a store. So so I want to talk a little bit about how you fix it. What do you do if you're behind the eight ball and, and you need to save up? And I, I first thing I'm going to say is exactly what I did 10 years ago. I, I mean, we had a lot personally hit us all at once financially, helping get a company off the ground, young kids, mm -hmm. eventually going to college. A lot of money going out, not as much coming in as I hoped for. And 10 years ago, what 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 I, I did was I said, I it's called looking at your future self. I said, okay, here's where I want to be in retirement. Here's how much I want to save. And, and not that these are my numbers, but I, I think a, a good round number strategy is, all right, if you've got a million dollars when you're ready to retire, you can draw, you should be able to expect to draw 4% off of that $40,000 a year of income over and above whatever you're getting from Social Security and maybe even a pension. Yeah. So if your goal is a million dollars that you want on the day you retire in your various investment accounts and you've got X number of dollars today, subtract one from the other. What's the difference? Put a rate of return on it and say, this is how much I have to put away over the next 10 years, 12 years, whatever the number is to get to my goal. You have to figure out that number of how you get from here to there to have 
any chance of achieving it. Yeah, and what's an easy way to figure out that number? Honestly, it's it's exploring working with a fiduciary financial yeah. advisor. It, it's very hard to go at this type of thing alone, Steve. Obviously, you're in the industry, so yeah. this is second nature for you. Um, you know, coming up later in the show, we're actually going to take a deep dive into that. Um, oftentimes, it leads to a more disciplined approach, too. So in our role, we oftentimes light a fire up underneath clients that we work with because we, we can show where they are and where they need to be and how we can close some of those gaps. Here's the all worth advice. If you want financial freedom, when you decide or can't work anymore, prepare, prepare, prepare. Coming up next, Amy joins us next to talk about some really good news for first time home buyers. You're listening to Simply Money on 55KRC, the talk station. Listening to Simply Money brought to you by Allworth Financial. I'm Amy Wagner along with Steve Sprovac. I have said this many times over the past couple of years. While the housing industry, while the real estate industry has gone bonkers, the people who I really, really feel sorry for is first-time home buyers. It's just really difficult for them. Tonight, though, we have some good news for first-time home buyers. Joining us tonight, of course, Britt Scares, our credit expert, um, with some good news. For anyone looking for an FHA loan, uh, let's talk about what that is, Britt. Well, FHA uh, loans are you know, insured by the Federal Housing Administration, and they're used a lot by first-time home buyers. Uh, FHA loans allow for folks to get into a mortgage with as little as 3.5% down. Uh, you can have a little bit less than perfect credit, and you can also, uh, on those down payments, those are allowed to be gifts and grants and so forth that you can use in conjunction with these uh, FHA-insured loans. And uh, they've made it a little more affordable uh, starting this month here in March, where the mortgage insurance that is charged on a monthly basis on these FHA-insured loans is dropping uh, 30 basis points. So where it used to cost... Uh, uh, 0.85% of the loan amount divided by 12 uh, as a monthly mortgage insurance premium. Well, that has now dropped to 0.55%, which is 30 basis points lower. And that makes the monthly mortgage payments on these FHA insured loans more affordable. So they're, they're three tenths of a percent lower on their interest rate. That, that with what we've seen over the past six, eight months or so, that's helpful because rates have gone from what about two and a half percent to I think they were over seven percent at one point, weren't they? Yeah, they they did go over seven, which obviously affected affordability. And of course, yeah. with FHA ins mortgage insurance premiums being a little bit higher than uh, than normal PMI on a conventional loan, that made it even more costly for these first time home buyers. And you know, making this go down a little bit on the mortgage insurance, well, that helps offset some of that increase in the rates. Now, rates have started to settle back down now uh, into the lower uh, to mid sixes, depending on credit scores and the like. But, uh, uh, you know, this is a welcome uh, relief uh, on the mortgage insurance side because, you know, hey, you know, 40 dollars $60 less in a monthly payment, that really helps a first-time home buyer. I was yeah. going to say for first time home buyers, and I remember back, like, you know, it was like a matter of $20, right? <laughs> Does this work? Can we make this work? I'm wondering, Britt, when you see that this, this decrease in the, um, in the insurance here, how do you think that fits into the overall picture for people trying to decide, are we ready for this in what, what they're currently up against with the real estate market? Well, I mean, we still are dealing with an inventory shortage, especially in the first-time homebuyer price range. You know, yeah. they're, you know, builders are continuing to build, but they, 
I don't know, everywhere I look, they seem to be building, you know, three and four and five hundred thousand dollar houses uh, or more uh, versus, you know, starter homes, you know, where someone may be in that one fifty to two hundred and fifty thousand dollar range. So one of the things that first time home buyers I think have been were really kind of hurt by, you know, during the last couple of years when we had all this, you know, below rates and everything, and you had all these crazy uh, offers, you know, above asking price and waiving inspections and doing all that sort of thing. Um, <laughs> you know, a lot of FHA buyers were kind of frozen out because a lot of the, um, a lot of the um, sellers just wanted cash offers. They just yeah. wanted, you know, conventional. The competition was so steep. Put, yeah. And they had the ability to offer 10000 20000 above asking price. Well, the first time home buyer doesn't have that Absolutely kind of, not. You know, capital. You know, they're getting their 3.5% down payment on an FHA loan, possibly gifted from their mom and dad, or they're getting a grant from a home, you know, first time home buyer program or something of that nature. Uh, so, you know, that was really hard on them. Uh, but now that, you know, things have started to slow down a little bit, I think they really have an opportunity right now. And, you know, sellers are no longer getting those multiple offers above asking price. Uh, <laughs> so they they might actually entertain more of these these borrowers. So a reduction of three-tenths of a percent on a 30-year mortgage, that, that's significant. Is that a one-time deal just this month or is that going forward? No, this is a this is a reduction in the mortgage insurance premium. So right. you know the the mortgage rates, um, you know, they're obviously they're still uh, dictated by the market. But this is an actual change by FHA uh, where they used to charge uh, they were charging for some time, uh, you know, 0.85 percent as a mortgage insurance premium. So now it's dropped to the 0.55, and so that is lowering across the board going forward on all FHA That's loans. Significant. The mortgage That's insurance. Huge. Yes, the mortgage yeah. insurance is going to be more affordable, and that that that's a big plus for especially for first time home buyers that would be using these uh, FHA insured loans to buy the first house. And Britt, I mean, just thinking about where we are right now as a country, I mean, everything's costing more. Has the FHA said why then they're lowering this these payments? <laughs> well, you know, they, it's just kind of going against the, the grain right now. I know. Well, let me tell you the reason. It, it, it's they raised these premiums significantly uh, after the crash in '08, so you know, they were worried about solvency uh, of of the fund that they used to insure these loans. Well, here's the thing: they ended up keeping these rates high, higher for a lot longer than they needed to. So the fund has way more reserves mm. and way more money in it than is than it needs. Uh, <laughs> so they probably should have done this a while ago, uh, but uh, they're just now getting around to lowering it now that it has so much extra money. In so the Washington had extra money lying they, around. They did the right thing, and they're, <laughs> wow. they're, they're not spending it. Shocking. Eventually, they, they, they decided, oh, yeah, we do have way too much money in this fund. We need to, we need to lower these premiums. So that's a good thing. Absolutely. So, Britt, what's your advice for someone who's maybe during the pandemic or over the past couple of years thought about dipping their toe into buying their first home and then they decided not now? Uh, what does it look like out there now? What's your advice to them? Well, I, I think now's a good time to be jumping back into the game. I think now first-time homebuyers especially will get a little more attention from sellers because, again, you don't have as many of these cash offers coming in and uh, multiples to a lot of the sellers. So they're more uh, open to other you know, other types of, of buyers and even more open to making concessions like you know, helping with 
paying some closing costs or something of that nature. And, uh, you know, I, I think you should uh, check your credit, make sure that it's in good shape, try to make any adjustments uh, that you need to, to so that your credit scores are as strong as they can be. And, you know, apply, get pre-approved with a lender and, uh, you know, get that pre-approval letter and then get you a good realtor and get, get out here and start looking at all these properties. And, and uh, you know, I think if you if you buy now, um, interest rates are certainly, uh, you know, they've come down a little bit in the last, you know, couple of weeks, unfortunately, with all the bank failures and everything, that's mm-hmm. actually helping mortgage interest rates a little bit. So I think you need to be getting in position for the spring buying season. I think you're going to see some opportunities here. And I think you'll have sellers that are you know, more open to working with first-time home buyers again. So I think it's a good time. Great advice, as always, from our credit expert, Brett Scarish. You're listening to Simply Money here on 55KRC, the talk station. You're listening to Simply Money presented by Allworth Financial. I'm Steve Sprovac along with Steve Ruby. Do you have a financial question you'd like for us to answer? Well, there's a red button you can click on while you're listening to the show on the iHeart app. Just record your question. It goes straight to us. We listen to those, and we may even put you on the air. Straight ahead, the danger of being too loyal at your job. Hey, Steve, earlier in the show, we spoke about the Fidelity study that showed Americans, they're going backwards. They're falling Mm -hmm. short on what they need for retirement. Um, I would call it a crisis, personally. Yeah, me too. Yeah, some some say, okay, blame the government. But, you know, maybe the fix is from a study I saw earlier today. Maybe maybe the answer is just seeking out advice. I know, such a simple answer, right? Yeah. So what, what, you, what you're talking about here is a, it's a study out of Switzerland that has found that simply talking to a financial advisor might, may be enough to dramatically boost people's savings rates to the point where they found that those that sought out the help of an advisor were 10 times more likely to open a retirement account in that month that they met with the advisor. Yeah. versus a month that they didn't. And, and, Ten you know, times. And, and you know, this this doesn't surprise me. I, I mean, besides being in the industry, as long as I have, I'm, I'm also a private pilot. And, and one of the things when you look at reasons for plane crashes, it, it's there. there's a, a just a crazy percentage of pilots who never ask the most important question when things start to head south. And, and that's asking the tower, hey, I need help. I need help. Hmm. Can you help me? Okay, and we don't do that in our financial world. And, you know, this there's a little bit of pride involved. And I think the answer is if you say, okay, I I know I need more money than I've got, but I need help. How do I get there? If you ask somebody in the business, chances are you're going to be given a pathway that you wouldn't have gotten on if you didn't ask. Yeah, we will. It's like seeing a doctor. We look at things from different angles, yep. different different lines of sight. Uh, it can lead to different uh, actions that you might take. Absolutely. Yeah. Now, now this is a, a study that was done in Switzerland. That is true. So this is not the United States. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, one of the things that as I'm, I'm reading this study, I'm saying to myself, yeah, but they've got a whole different retirement system. Their, their pension system is extreme. It's ranked one of the top five pensions in the world. Yeah. Um, it doesn't kick in until you're 65, not like Greece or, or France that they're battling over right now. So you've got to be 65 to draw a pension, but it's got three pillars. The first pillar paid for by your employer and yourself is basically what our social security system is. But they've got a second pillar that's also paid by yourself and your employer 
for additional money based on your income while you were working. And then they have a third pillar, which is a voluntary pillar. Um, if you want to pay into it, you're going to get even more in, in retirement. So they, they've got a real strong payment system coming to retirees, which tells me they're not as dependent on putting money into the stock market. And that bears out in some of the numbers we saw in this. Yeah, I mean, the study... The, it only looked at cases where an advisor initiated the contact, though. Yeah. So not where the client did. So it, it's, it, it isn't a case of people contacting advisors because they already wanted to up their savings. These are people that actually took action because they spoke with an advisor that reached out to them. Yeah, but they did open up accounts mm -hmm. for additional savings over and above a pretty robust pension system. Yeah. So when I, I see things like, okay, there's only about, I, I think it's 60% uh, have a retirement account and only a third uh, of Swiss uh, people invest directly or indirectly in stocks. That's to me, uh, that, that tells me that um, they don't really need to because of the, the robust pension system. You're listening to Simply Money on 55KRC. I'm Steve Sprovac along with Steve Ruby. And we're talking about how important it is to find professional advice if you're not on the track you need to be to retire. Yeah, and regarding this, the Swiss, the Swiss study, uh, it, it didn't. Or it, it looked at people at different education levels and, and realized that they didn't respond differently to this advice. Uh, less educated were just as likely to raise their saving rates as, as those with more education, and there was really no difference between men and women either in, in this situation. Now, now shifting gears a little bit, talking about another recent uh, comprehensive study. Depending on the client's circumstances, working with a qualified uh, financial advisor adds on average as much as 4% or more in returns above going at it alone. Yeah, and, and I like to see those numbers from outside sources because when we come up with numbers like that, people are going to tell us, uh, yeah, sure. Yeah, of course, know, right? you you're biased. So, yeah, yeah what do you know? Um, but, but at the end of the day, it's not just because of investment returns. It's because of the behavioral coaching that advisors right. like us as fiduciaries provide to our clients. It's more than just investments. It's, it's tax solutions, it's estate planning, it's insurance solutions. Uh, the, and, and that all adds up together. It, it does. And so what should you ask uh, an investment advisor or a professional? I, I think number one is, are you a fiduciary? And fiduciary yep. means, are you working on my benefit? for my benefit or for your or your company's benefit very important legal distinction not just not just ethical legal distinction how do you get paid I, I mean that's okay to ask what are your qualifications how will our relationship work how often do we meet what's your investment philosophy here's the all worth advice asking for help might be the most important step you're ever going to take on the road to financial freedom coming up next how to overcome the pitfalls of being a loyal employee you're listening to Simply Money on 55KRC, the talk station. You're listening to Simply Money, presented by Allworth Financial. I'm Steve Sprovec, along with Steve Ruby. Steve, does this describe your work situation? You do a great job, you're diligent, get results, loyal to the company, but because of that, you are rewarded with more work. Does that I, sound familiar? I have a trend of that in my entire career, I feel like. But of course, it I'm happens. biased. Yeah, yeah. I'm a little biased co coming from self-reflection here. But yeah, absolutely. The, the, all the time in different roles that I've had, I've, I've been asked to do more. And, you know, that's that's fine. But there's there's a study that we want to shine some light on here that says if, if you're a loyal worker, 
you're likely also to be an exploited worker. <laughs> yeah, so this is the key takeaway from the study that was done by a, a postdoctoral researcher at Duke University's did, did, uh, School did, of Business. Did you see the name of the paper? The name of the paper is Loyal Workers Are Selectively and Ironically Targeted for Exploitation. Mm -hmm. I don't need to read anything more. I mean, yeah. if, if you want people to read your paper, you probably should save a little something and not put it all in the title. Yeah. It sums it up, though. It sure does. Yeah. It does. Stanley's research, that's the name of the guy that, that did the study, he, he this involved asking hundreds of managers to determine how much work they dole out among their employees in, in, in fictional scenarios. Yeah. So kind of an experiment. Uh, the employee who identified as, as loyal was more consistently asked to do unpaid work, unpaid work, and take on additional job tasks uh, compared to those that considered themselves to be disloyal. Well, I, I would title that concept, no good deed goes unpunished. <laughs> yes. I, I mean, you know, you want you want to be good at your job. You want to get, you know, pay raises and salary increases and all that uh, sort of thing. But um, yeah, uh, sometimes it just doesn't pay. And I, I think the key is you've got to set boundaries. I mean, not, not doing as good a level of work or, or just kind of slacking it, that's not necessarily the answer. Mm -mm, no, no, no. And this is a vicious cycle too. Uh, you know, the, the, the more loyal the employee, they, the more work they do, the greater the right. chance that they're going to be asked to do more. So it, it can be kind of a snowball effect. And, and, and you might have to be confrontational with your boss. Now, now in a uh, former company, um, I used to get routinely get phone calls 9, 9, 30, 10 at night, which was real frustrating oh, yeah. because after five, you know, to me, that's my time. But I would go right from work to coach my kid in baseball and also ran the baseball program. So I was getting phone calls from parents up until 9, 9, 30, finally relaxing and then the phone rings. And, and at one point I had to say, hey, if this isn't a major issue that needs to be addressed right now, can we just talk about this tomorrow? And after a couple times of doing that and having a very frustrated boss who, who was not happy that in his view, I wasn't with the program, um, I did set boundaries and it did settle down and we did keep work nine to five from that point on. But that's, that's a tough call. You've got to be pretty confident in your situation at work to be able to call your supervisor on the, on that subject. Yeah. And that's, that's not doing less in my opinion either. Right. That that's, that's setting boundaries versus doing less. It's not the same thing. And, and that's what the study also pointed out. You don't want to fight back just by doing less. Right. Cause we still owe our employees. But but weekends or employers that is yeah, yeah weekends weekends to me that that's off limits that's you've got to have those kinds of healthy boundaries and, and and I think a good boss or a good supervisor he's going to acknowledge okay maybe I was a little bit out there with with that with I, that request I, I I was off on Friday and and I do have a boss and and he called me. And I answered right? and he realized after I answered, he's like, oh, oh, I, I see your calendar is blocked. Oh, you're on PTO. We don't have to talk about anything. Yeah, right now. that's a good boss. Oh, yeah, I agree. I was very happy with that. Thanks for listening. Tune in tomorrow. We're going to talk about artificial intelligence picking stocks and the danger that may involve. You've been listening to Simply Money presented by Allworth Financial on 55KRC, the talk station.